0: As this informational explosion takes place, what comes out of it is microurbanism. Within it, there's this micro-possibility. You know, it's just mind-boggling. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City.
1: I'm Charles Waldheim. We're joined today by architect, urbanist and educator, Graham Shane. Graham joins us to discuss his career in urban design and having come uh, full circle. Graham, welcome.
0: Oh, thank you, Charles. Uh, Yeah, it's a funny feeling to be full circle. So uh, yes, I'm working on uh, oral uh, history uh, for uh, M Plus Museum in Hong Kong. It's a Herzog and de Meuron big project on the waterfront at Kowloon in their cultural center. Archigram has sold their archive of uh, thousands of drawings to M+. And um, Dennis Crompton has called on me to be uh, a friendly critic and um, interviewer for the Mainly focused on the early years and origins of Archigram, they're pretty well documented. Later on, it's actually the time that I was a student in London in the '60s, and so it's really taking me back into uh, a, a lost world.
1: So, this most recent project, um, you know, re- revisiting, uh, kind of building an oral history of the early, the early years uh, of Archigram, takes you back in a way, to the origins of your own career. You were, of course, a student uh, in Bedford Square at the Club Association. Um, how is it that you came to know this cast of characters? How is it you came to uh, study in Bedford Square and then have a chance to work with these people?
0: Oh, that's uh, uh, it's a really classic story, uh, to put it short. I was a scholarship boy in St. Paul's the Cathedral School, a very prestigious school. And I dropped out, I had a wonderful historian, professor who said, what do you want to be? And I said, an architect, I was like 16. And he said, we'll find the best architecture school and you'll go there. And sure enough, I was accepted by Tony Urdley in the interview and at Bedford Square. And I shot into the school at like 17 and a half. There were a lot of people the queen's cousin, all these other people who had been in the army who were a lot older than me, and I didn't have to go.
1: This would have been 63?
0: Yes. So i uh, the school was uh, amazing. It was still Corbusian, um, very heavily uh, modern. Uh, Jane Drew was the president, used to arrive in, with a chauffeur and a Rolls Royce. Um, we were fighting to keep the school independent and not join imperial college of science and technology so there was a big battle going on between the students union and the trustees of the school led by jane drew Um, it was very um intense it was so complicated because we were against the formulaic state programs we wanted more liberty and freedom but we didn't want the social service net to be demolished. It was as Cedric Price was exactly on the knife edge on this, uh, that he wanted to have a much more Scandinavian individualized public system than the British bare bones system, which still had the private schools and so on on top of it. And, uh, and while uh, Mrs. Thatcher was just beginning at the end of this period in after 68 she became the minister of education it's another whole story anyway uh so we fought uh against the the leaders of the school every year i was there i think it was probably one of the best architectural schools in the world at the time i thought about leaving i thought about going to cambridge which was the other small it was just brand new small school liverpool was the big rival university school I thought about, I had an American girlfriend at a certain stage. I thought about going to Harvard and MIT um, because they were in Boston and she was there. Uh, and and um, I got oriented mainly, I think, through Raina Banham and Archigram towards America uh, about the third year. Uh, the, the ties to Europe To Germany were very, very few because of the war. Uh, There was a big alliance to Italy, and I could speak a little bit of Italian. Uh, And then French was my other language, so Paris was on the radar for
1: me. We've discussed, speaking of Paris, you and I have discussed at other moments, being a student, 67, 68, uh, the role of students in Paris the role of students uh, in the United States think of Columbia as a campus was there a similar tenor among the student cohort in Bedford Square or in London broadly uh, you know was there a sense of a, a sense of societal mission with respect to the identity of students
0: There was uh, uh, but it also had the Beatles and the Rolling Stones riding in the corner it was you know um, very hippie oriented um, turn against the welfare state in certain ways, uh, but in, you know, in embracing it. And uh, yes, and we as a class were locked down basically by we had to do the RBA exams one year early so that in 68, we wouldn't revolt against the powers that be. But then Peter Cook, who became the fifth year master taking over from the Smithsons, Allison and Peter Smithsons, which is a team 10 out of CM team 10 shift to archigram. Uh, this was the new world. And he had to invent a whole new program for just the diploma. And so it was, uh, and in, we had to create, and for the diploma, we had to do a thesis. And for the first semester, um he did a, a hybrid building on a bomb site nearby a bureau hotel, and um, it was actually really imaginative setup and i did a kind of cedric price miniature thing with uh cranes that move pieces around inside and bucky full of domes of housing on the roof very contextual huh? in <laughs> and uh my tutor was Gowan, and he used to have me come in as the last person. And he wouldn't turn the lights on, and we'd sit and talk. I'd draw in a notebook and because there was no requirement. And I was doing these drawings, and he would go through the notebook each week. And then we'd go to the bar and have a drink. It was unbelievable setup. And then in the winter, as it got darker and darker, we just sat and talked. I mean, it was incredible freedom in a way—a very tutorial system, um, unlike uh, unlike a lot of schools, I think. And, but I was ready for it because I was prepared. You know, Oxford, Cambridge—that was the way
1: things were done, uh, with the tutor, tutor in the room. You've mentioned Graham um, in other conversations. The the sense of um, you know the the social or the political um, leavened by a, a cultural project, right? I, I think. You know, you've also suggested that there may be some commonalities in your formulation of returning full circle. You you see certain uh, echoes or certain resonances with with architectural culture today.
0: It was very political. Uh, the left was very very strong. It was um, there was beginnings of the environmental movement. People thought that oil and gas would run out by two thousand. There was um, I was very involved in community organisation and fighting against highways going through uh, neighbourhoods. Uh, you know, it's sort of Jane Jacobs, but much more political. And um, there was also a whole movement as this shift from publicly funded work to the private sector began. There was a whole critique of property development. That I really took part in a lot. My early writings for AD Architectural Design are all about property development. Partly because my father was a lawyer and involved in it as a lawyer. One of the things that I got into because of Archigram was collage, and their early work coming out of RCA um, and all Palazzi and um, all this art. There was a lot of collage, surrealist collage and i started doing that to archigram to take pieces of them and my thesis was that they didn't know how to make a city and so this would lead me on later to well who does do urban design turned out no one in europe there was town planning now i realize within liverpool university in 1909 they'd set up something called civic design which was basically urban design, Camelot City. But I didn't know about that when I was young. And um, this is full circle in another kind of way. And so uh, I started looking at American schools, having an American girlfriend. And of course, Colin Rowe was out there.
1: Set the scene for us, you're you're in Cornell in the 70s. What are the options available to you having arrived there?
0: It's really a complicated story because the U.S. Uh, consumerism and the automobile and consumer society was much faster developed post-war in the U.S. than in Britain. Like uh, it was just beginning to happen in as I became a teenager, whereas in the U.S. it happened right after the war um, in the 50s. And... um there's a whole lot of things you could say about that, but with, let's stay with the schools. yeah, I reviewed all the schools and I thought about Harvard because my girlfriend was in Boston, and I decided that this is really complicated that I wanted to go to Cornell. I thought about Columbia too. Um, Ken was here
1: in in Brampton, you mentioned had was already in Columbia um, you know, I knew him. I decided
0: on. Cornell, because of Colin Rowe, in '69, I went for an interview with Colin to go to Cornell. It's actually an amazing piece of history. I had no idea. Uh, Alex Carrigan, his TA from Cornell, came in and said to Colin in the middle of my interview, "They've changed the lock," and it was the lock on the door of the IAUS eisenman had changed the lock so that colin couldn't go in there and
1: make trouble this is of course the institute for architecture and urban studies yeah
0: where which was you know a brilliant uh, initiative that eisenman and colin had started the year before anyway so i had no idea what they were talking about but anyway colin accepted me right away get me out the room And then forgot to defile the papers, so I couldn't go to school. This is typical. And eventually I did get there. I had a really hard time. The, The figure ground exercises that he wanted you to do as the first semester exercises, I thought were idiotic. And I told him so in class. And there was complete silence in the room. And he just did this sort of army thing oh, okay, what do you want to do? And then I said, oh, I want to study London. And he did this sort of thing, carry on. And then he never spoke to me for the rest of the semester, just would come up and grunt. It was very weird kind of thing. Then I got an A plus at the end of the semester. Meanwhile, he'd written to Alvin Bajarski, who was organizing the summer school, international summer school, uh, the first one of his summer schools um shane will come with me and show his drawings i was doing layer upon layer upon layer of drawings because the founder of the cornell graduate school andrew dixon white was an anglophile and collected thousands of drawings of london uh, maps
1: so the ungers the ungers camp are mapping uh, berlin and the Rowe camp are looking at maps of london Was this at the pivot from figure ground to contextualism? Do I have that right, or am I getting ahead of myself?
0: They came later, yes, exactly. Yes, for me, it was absolutely. And it was, I think, you know, I've been doing this history of Colin that I was just telling you about before we started, right? And so this is part of the full circle. Um, He started teaching that program a few years after cert started at Harvard in 60, in 63, he started the urban design program at Cornell. And um, Colin um, started off at this huge Corbusian scale of the superblock, being contextual, which was nonsense. And um, uh, it's really complicated. It, fairly soon, he began to adjust it in the Harlem project that he did for MoMA and then another Buffalo project. Uh, these are in the late 60s. When I got there, I started doing historic maps of London. And, you know, his thesis for Vidco had been about Inigo Jones. And Inigo Jones had done the first British Newtown, as Summerson called it, of Covent Garden. And I that was just about to be demolished by the LCC and the GLC for a highway. And I was doing bottom-up fight against this, you know, Jane Jacobs, blah, blah so it was it was just one of these amazing coincidences and then london was done as a collage system of these like 16 3200 and so and so acre plots of what had been farmland over 200 years as it grew to the west and then going to the east they did the same system doing the docklands these huge projects uh for the empire imperial trade so and i didn't know colin was starting to write collage city you know it was just like lucky dog
1: speaking of lucky dog i mean looking just i mean having you know been lucky enough to become friendly with you and know your work over the years to look at your CV, you know, I mean, you you have this extraordinary kind of zealot-like uh, history in which from, at least from the, from the outside, you know, like you happen to pop up in the photograph in Bedford Square at the right moment in the 1960s. You know, you happen to then appear just at the moment of this important you kind know, of conversation in Ithaca at Cornell in the 1970s. And then you, you finish your PhD, you move on to Columbia in the 1980s, and you seem to appear always in frame at these consequential moments
0: I mean, just when Jim arrived, you know, it's it's such an amazing life, really. For me, um, Columbia was a fantastic experience, but, you know, uh, it, it had its dangers and, and um, tensions. We went in a program there from five students to 50 in five years. And, uh, you know, with a budget that just exponentially grew. And we hired uh, at an incredible rate. And the administration was a nightmare, you know. But it was also a time when, um, you know, New York was coming back from bankruptcy and drugs. And it was before Bloomberg but Bloomberg was coming. Uh, it was a very, very exciting.
1: For, for the better part of the past four decades, um, you lived in New York. Do you consider yourself a New Yorker?
0: Yeah, I do actually. I realized I taught at Cooper for a long time, I hated, And I realized one time in one session there, I was talking about New York as if it was London and my home. I still say that you can drop me down in London blindfold and I'll know where I am within, you know, two seconds. I, I really did. I, I do have a good visual memory and I'm very spatially oriented just that's the way I'm built and luckily I I was able to shift into something visual as a young person and um, but I do love New York more more than London and and what I liked about it was that in London I suppose because I knew the class system so well and so aware of it I really felt shut in and i came from a a a well-to-do family nothing fancy really middle class but okay but i knew that you know i knew some lords and ladies but i knew that that was never going to be for me and i i wasn't where i wanted to be it also in those days with the declining empire and declining industrial base and you know the closing of all the big Docks and so on. It was. It, it didn't seem like there was any future, and everybody, America, just seemed like a dream, you know, to go and do that. So yeah, going to Cornell, I had no idea what I was getting into. I'd never lived in the countryside like that, and it, they, sometimes it's called the cow college and so on, big ag school, uh, classic American uh land grants farms you know the landscape is incredible colin was very into the landscape which is something that i've really clicked on more recently and he came from a coal mining town in south yorkshire that was similar in many ways to ithaca with the valleys and stuff
1: so you're suggesting that colin roe had a, a kind of geologic sensibility about him he, he could read uh, those patterns
0: it was unconscious. I think he had a. He made me, as a graduate student, do a lot of work on the picturesque, the British, uh, and he and he was famous for being against townscape, which was the post-war sort of new urbanism of Britain, which A. R. Uh, uh, did. But you know, there was another side of picturesque that was to do with the theatrical and the classical survival in the landscape and uh, memento mori and the reminder of death and all this stuff inside landscape that he had us all read. Well, I had me read all that stuff.
1: This was during your this is during your doctoral work.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and a lot of Warburg stuff where he had studied, And I became I became convinced that now and this is my late age, that Warburg and Vidkoa were really, really important for his. He had a photographic memory. So he could look at your drawings and then remember when you went walking in London. Wasn't there a stream near here? Wasn't this Lord so-and-so? And it was like, uh, shit. Excuse me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Graham, you've mentioned now, you know, Colin Rowe, and Rainer Banham and Ken Frampton. To what extent w- were you consciously a part of a cohort of uh expat Brits. I mean, obviously, living in New York at a point in time in the 1980s, um, it strikes me that, you know, at least in our conversations, you were clearly within a a group of people, a kind of social cohort that had a lot of differences between you, but also shared quite a lot. And I wonder if, would it be fair to think of you as a cohort, uh, either generationally or in terms of your, you know, interests?
0: I always, it's so complicated. I always felt like the Institute gang were the generation ahead of me like even though say tony is not much older than me uh ken is is a lot older but i always felt closer to him because he was AA. i mean it's complicated bannum it was very complicated with me because colin and bannum didn't get along but bannum was incredibly important for me as a student Uh, in orienting me towards uh, the U.S. And, um, you know, and then in the summer sessions, he was very big power, as was Archigram and so on.
1: So, Graham, over the course of the past um, two decades uh, or more, you've been a remarkably prolific uh, writer, uh, you've published in the space of that time two monographs, uh, Recomend Urbanism, uh, and then Urban Design since 1945: A Global Perspective. You've of course been uh, active uh, teaching in Venice, Milan, uh, regular engagements in Asia, in addition to your obligations at um, uh, the Cooper Union and at Columbia. Uh, one of the things I'm interested in 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 the the this what you refer to as your productive late period um, is the. The sense of authority with which you're kind of summing up and speaking on behalf of urban design uh, globally, right? So you, you begin by, you know, identifying the emergence of urban design or that impulse in uh, London and in Europe more broadly, post-World War II, uh, the idea of rebuilding the European city after uh, the war or the Blitz in London in particular. Um, and at the same moment, as we've discussed, there is this very particular you know, American formulation of uh, of urban design in the post-war years uh, as well. And what I'm interested to know from, you know, the predictive writing that you've been doing and the impact of these books, because you're now, I mean, a, a kind of international dean of, of urban design, let's say, you speak for the field and I, I see you often invited to comment on the field at, at, at large. Um, I'm interested to know um we're seventy-five years removed now from that first English-language formulation, or more, in 1943, um, and I wonder to what extent you find the the rubric of urban design to still to be to be useful. It, you know, it, we of course work in institutions that have you know August programs in urban design. You and I have been you know remain committed to the field, but I wonder to what extent, after now three quarters of a century, um, what are the prospects for urban design uh, as a both an Academic discipline, but also as a form of practice uh, going forward oh, it's a beautiful question. I mean, there are
0: days when I
1: feel like
0: um, what's the point you know uh, you know that the discipline, which is what I believe in that, that there is such a thing, and uh, it has a tradition and uh, and yet you also know that. In reality, probably 60% of the urban production will be outside of any kind of control in the world in the global scheme of things. But even so, you've got to do the best you can. And then also, uh, I call it informal. I know that that's, there's people who wouldn't call it informal, but just for as a convention, just for now, that, that informality has its own geometries and so on and so forth. And you have to learn to work with that. And so I think long-term, that's what we're going to have to do. And there's also the whole question of what is urban? I mean, this is something that you and I certainly have thought about and talked, you know, what is urbanity and how, like once you accept the car and mobility as part of the logic of uh, urbanism uh rural urban uh peri-urban whatever you want to call it it's uh, the we were talking about the hudson valley before um you know uh, what is urban and urban design that's one of the things that i've really enjoyed in the discussions in venice that were very very important to me colin died in 99 and I first went to Venice, to the Venice program that year, uh, you know, to a grand palazzo on the Grand Canal with oak lined rooms and 60 graduate students doing PhDs. It was like going to heaven. And for the next 20 years, I've been going and it's been an incredible experience. And that, of course, links into a pan-European Network to Holland uh, and so on and so forth, but at the same time, one of my uh, I was I was also the external examiner for the University College London for the urban design program because one of my friends from the AA was the head of urban design there, Colin Fournier at that time, and then one of my students became a dean of a school in Hong Kong, and I started going to Hong Kong on a regular basis for four or five years. So that's starting in 99 as well. Uh, I just kind of stopped being an administrator at Columbia, and this whole global panoply opened out. And it's just luck. I was lucky with the networks and the skill. And so I I had a kind of ringside seat through Hong Kong onto Asia. I'd already been to, and I also, I did the, in 2000, I did the uh, Mitsubishi, biannual urban design, very prestigious in Asia lecture, uh, what became Riverside South, uh, uh, Trump development. And there were a lot of different schemes for that. And, and I'd written, I published on that. And they asked me to lecture about that. And this was just before Mitsubishi bought uh, the Rockefeller Center. I mean, it's a, you know, mind-boggling series of events. But anyway, so Asia started to open up, and Europe also. And you know, now it's so weird the way the world works. Uh, through a friend in Paris who had taught uh, several Chinese students uh, in the 70s, I was invited to Tongji uh, by one of his ex-students who was the head of the uh, urban design history at Tongji from Hong Kong to go co- and do, um, do conferences. in. Tonji, which is in Shanghai. And there I met the man who had translated Colin Rowe into Chinese. And the the doors opened in incredible suites, you know, to Wang Shu, who was his roommate from college, and just a whole other world of China. I was used to Hong Kong by then, which was British colonial, but Chinese. It's this beautiful twist. And, you know, a new town in, Chi- in Hong Kong was hyper dense versus the Garden City in England. Uh, the infrastructure, all the plans that had been made for London that I'd helped stopped had gone through in Hong Kong. Highways were everywhere, you know, and there was the upper deck pedestrian system and the uh, and then TOD, transport oriented development. It was like an eye opener for me, all of that.
1: I mean what's interesting Grant, for me among other things is you know of this of this incredible um you know story is that the these um opportunities to teach and to lecture and your travels kind of globally certainly in Europe and in Asia they don't correspond to you know declining scholarly production it's in fact the productivity comes out of those conversations, right? So the, you know, the, the, the two monographs, uh, among other things, in addition to all the other journal articles and forwards and other, other forms of, of, of scholarship, um, I mean, it's striking to me, uh, the two books you know, um, for me, are, they have this canonical you know, quality about them in part because of your ability to look across you know, the Americas, Europe, Asia. You're foregrounding in different ways in both of them at least these three elements you've mentioned. So on the one hand, there are the kind of ongoing forces of urbanization, right? The kind of processes of capital reproduction among other things, which continue to work well beyond the scale of design or even planning, let's say. Um, then there is the second element, which is really the you referred to it as the, in some ways the informal or the non-formal or the you know, urbanism without urbanists, let's say. Um, and then there's this third piece that you, you're recursively returning to always, which is the, the role of the design project. Have you ever abandoned hope with respect to the importance of the, of the project, the urban project, the idea of design at the scale of the city?
0: No, no. The, this, is, this is beautiful. The Chinese experience is so massive. And yet, uh, you know, there's these urban villages, the informal Well, they're not actually informal. It's a system that's trapped inside another system that then becomes like a parasite on the other system, and they interact. It's beautiful, amazing. I'm not saying they did it deliberately, and now they're wiping them out. Yeah, okay. But the really weird thing is that when I studied in London, the growth of London, these villages would get trapped inside uh st martin's in in the fields you know the same thing happened in miniature the thing that i i'm coming around to i've got a collected series of about five or six essays on china now over the last 10 years i want to put them together and but what comes out of it is micro urbanism that as this informational explosion takes place and this mega scale territorial urbanism that we, we're in. And then some people say it's global, whatever. Just that, like when we talk about the Hudson Valley or something like that. But within it, there's this micro possibility. And that ties in, in so many ways, through the handheld and the, like I have the fiber optic cable on my rural street. And, you know, it's just mind-boggling. And Archigram was imagining this kind of stuff 60 years ago how many i don't know and it's come true some of it and of course capitalism like you say rolling on it's uh it's but when you say capitalism in china you know it's another ball game you know you takes a lot of another reading
1: Graham, we'll look forward to your collected essays on urbanism in China. Uh, speaking of which, you and um, some of your colleagues uh, at Columbia have produced uh, this extraordinary recent publication on mega-block urbanism, describing what our colleague Christopher Lee has referred to as the developmental block in Asia and in China in particular. And mounting, um, is this fair, a kind of a defense of the mega-block, both in cultural terms? Um, I know that here uh, at the GSD, our colleagues Peter Rowe and Ann Forsyth have been working also on situating the mega block in a very particular set of Chinese contexts, and in fact, that the, the wholesale rejection of the mega block is, in fact, perhaps a Western uh, problem. Is, is that fair?
0: Yes, no, it's a tradition. Well, in my experience in London with the great estates, they also could end up being 120 acres. So they were mega. Uh, but within them, uh, they broke down in a different kind of way. I'm interested in how the megablock fragments within itself, and also the way in which infrastructure, like subways and things, they set up points within it. And, um, and so the TOD kind of gets an overlay onto the megablock.
1: I know you're interested in this, the the micro-urban, you know, the life within the block, let's say, but you've also now connected it to this, the the larger infrastructure, this larger pattern of connectivity. It's interesting that you're looking at the the two scales in which the block sits.
0: I wrote that nine years ago. It took forever to come out. Luckily, someone put it online uh, eight years ago. So, you know, uh, but yeah, I would do it differently now. Just being around Uh, in China and working with like Wang Shu and and Ming Tong, my friends, they still have a cultural dimension. Uh, It does have to do with landscape. It does have to do with their traditions. It's very complicated. And it does have to do with the way the streets, blocks, all of those things are hierarchically organized inside of the administration of the city, which is completely different. Than what we have, and also the finance system is another whole ball game. I am I'm, I'm trying to puzzle this out. I'm really interested in the work that these guys are doing, and then there are people in Hong Kong doing stuff, and in Shenzhen, Urbanus, my pals, are doing stuff, and um, it gets really complicated because they'll create urban villages on the roof of a mega mall. Uh, of course, it's all planned, it's but it has the scale and feel. And I'm not sure what I think about it exactly yet. I'm still, my mind is being boggled uh, continually and um, it's exciting. But then there's other times when you feel like there's no way to keep up with cities, that it's, you know, the recombinant drive of capitalism or even communist capitalism, whatever you want to call it, state-led development at that scale or micro. Then now micro is okay, you know. It's mind boggling what's going to come out. And the really why I said full circle is that when you look back at Abercrombie and they were kind of concerned about the villages. And they were they had Dennis Sharp who did the books about villages. They had these geographers who knew what the farming was and the survey and the landscape. And there was a kind of, of course a balance inside it, but it was like a death Splurt, you know, before Mrs. Thatcher and everything exploded. And, you know, and in reality, the Docklands, you know, they were never developed under the state planning. There was never the capital to do it. It took Mrs. Thatcher to get it done in the east of London. Anyway, it's a curious circle. I think that I'm going to want to do what Colin did in his last 10 years, which is look back and try and make some shape out of it for the next generations as it
1: were it's important work graham and we will look forward to that decade of your uh, reflections and having come uh, full circle graham shane thanks so very much
0: thanks thanks you've been listening to future of the american city curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit fotac.gsd.harvard.edu.